So this big uh, hurricane is on its way to Florida. This is definitely uh, this is this is definitely a boy who cried wolf problem. Every now, every time now with the hurricanes, uh, because every year, every year without fail, we're told about some monster historic storm that will have a devastating impact and potentially kill hundreds of people. And then you know the Drudge Report. If you go to the Drudge Report right now, it's just it's just one story after another, just very dramatic. Uh, thing, which is what he always does with hurricanes. Um, and then most of the time it comes and goes and it does some damage, but nothing historic occurs. And, and that's the end of it. And they're saying the same thing right now with this one, potentially. Um, and and who knows, you know, maybe it will be true. I'm not a meteorologist. So if you live in one of the potential areas affected by the hurricane, hurricane, don't listen to what I'm, don't make any decisions based on what I'm saying. I mean, in general, in life, don't make decisions based on what I say, uh, but especially with this, because I'm not making any predictions about what will or won't happen. I'm just saying that we have to stop turning every hurricane into Armageddon because then it makes it impossible to actually distinguish the serious threats from the unserious ones. I remember I lived, um, I lived in, a, in, a, in a coastal town, uh, well, ne- near coastal. I, I lived very close to a coastal town, a few miles from the coast. Uh, for for several years in my early 20s. And one of those years, we had a big hyped hurricane headed for us. I, I don't remember which one, what, what the name of it was. But um, uh, I remember this, you know, the hype leading up to it very well. And I especially remember having this emotional conversation with my then girlfriend, now wife. And uh, she was trying to convince me to, you know, we were on the phone. She was trying to convince me to leave, to evacuate. And uh, to go stay with her at her mother's house because it was going to be so dangerous. She was afraid I was going to die in the hurricane. And, um, and, uh, and I said, you know, I, I, I couldn't do that because I, I had to work. And I mean, my town hadn't technically been evacuated because it was more inland. So, um, you know, and I, had, and I had a job and everything, so I was going to stay. And so I told her, I said, no, I must stay, my love. Fear not. Words to that effect. It's not exactly what I said, but something like that. And that night when the hurricane was supposed to, it's supposed to hit in the middle of the night. And so I, I slept, um, you know, they said on the news, don't, you don't want to be near windows. So I slept like behind the couch in a, in a sleeping bag away from the windows. And I was expecting, I had canned goods and I had flashlights and I had whiskey. So I had all the stuff you need to get through the hurricane. And I was expecting to wake up the next morning and it would be like the movie, The Road, where you'd have bands of cannibals patrolling the streets and, you know, just just utter devastation. And I woke up the next morning and um, all the damage consisted of there were some, there was, there was, there were a lot of leaves that had blown onto my porch, uh, which I had to sweep those away. That was annoying. And there was an especially large twig that had fallen onto the hood of my car and, you know, actually scratched it a little bit. That was the extent of the damage after all of this hype. Um, My point here is that coverage of hurricanes, I think the coverage is extremely irresponsible all the time now. Because there's no attempt to be reasonable or to be restrained. And the effect is that everyone treats hurricane coverage now like entertainment and nobody takes it seriously. And that's a dangerous situation because sometimes these hurricanes actually are bad. We know that really bad hurricanes do happen. They don't happen every year. I mean, every year we don't have a historic hurricane, unlike what we're told by the media and by climate change activists, which we'll get to that in a second. Um, we don't have them every year, but sometimes they do happen. It's just that now, if you if you live in one of these areas and you're trying to figure out, is this something like that, or is this going to be a, a dud? I mean, 
to to leave your home and your work and everything behind, that's not it's not sort of an automatic thing. It's a, like a decision you have to make. And uh, and so I don't I don't I don't envy the people who live in these towns where hurricanes happen because how do you how how are you supposed to know anymore when every single hurricane is treated this way? So who knows? Maybe this will be one of those situations. I hope not. Um, but we'll find out. There is one aspect of Hurricane Dorian which uh, concerns me. I'll just mention briefly here. Bloomberg has a report about an added threat of this storm. You see Miami, which is maybe in line for the for the hurricane, like a lot of cities these, these days, is infested with scooters. People go around on these uh, scooters because they're too lazy to walk and too cheap to take an Uber. So they go around on these scooters everywhere. And so now some officials are worried that um, the hurricanes are going to sweep up these scooters and turn them into projectiles. And you're going to have, you know, people dying from flying scooters all over the place, uh, which would be like the weirdest Sharknado sequel ever. Maybe there will be sharks on the scooters. That would be, that's an idea actually for, for a movie. Who knows? Anything is possible. All right, before we go any further, um, and uh, as I said, speaking of climate change activists, there's this one particular climate change activist who you've probably seen on your TV in the last few days. Um, we're going to talk about, about her and about that in a second. But first, I want to tell you about our good friends over at Dynatrap. You know, I've been telling you about Dynatrap all summer long. And um, just as the summer's winding down, that doesn't mean that you don't have to worry anymore about bugs and insects inside your home. In fact, uh, as the weather cools down, you know, those bugs outside are going to look for warmer, more inviting conditions, and that's where they come into your home. Into your home. That's, this is your house we're talking about. You didn't invite them in, yet they come. Um, and that's why we'd like to thank our sponsors over at Dynatrap. Dynatrap is the leading manufacturer of outdoor mosquito and insect traps, and now they come up with a solution for indoor pests. That is the Dynatrap Fly Light. The Dynatrap Fly Light works day and night to attract and trap flies, fruit flies, mosquitoes, other pesky insects. And uh, it really does work. I was, you know, we were on vacation last week and I was there with, with my in-laws and my, my brother and sister-in-law. This is true. They were actually, we were actually having a conversation about the Dynatrap fly light. And uh, because they, you know, they, they listen to the podcast and they, they've heard me talking about it. And they said, does it really actually work? Are you just saying, I said, no, it really does work. It, it is great. Uh, that was an actual conversation that, that took place. Um, so Dynatrap fly light, like this thing, it's a, it's a, it's a, Light, you plug it in, and it attracts the, the, the flies and, the, and all the other insects, and it gets rid of them, and it really is as easy as that. Get yours at Dynatrap.com. That's D-Y-N-A-T-R-A-P.com. Enter the promo code Walsh and receive 15% off any of their products. Dynatrap, the safe, silent, simple solution to household insect control. Okay, so Greta uh, Thunberg, or Thunberg, Thunberg? Uh, I, you know, I haven't said anything about this story up until now because um, I don't care that much. But there is one aspect of it that really grinds my gears, as Peter Griffin might say. Greta is a 16-year-old climate change activist from Sweden who was invited to um, speak in front of a, a UN assembly in New York for some reason. I mean, of all the people in the world who maybe could speak on the issue of climate change uh, they said, let's get this 16-year-old in there. Okay. But she didn't want to fly here because of the carbon emissions from airplanes. So instead, she embarked on a days-long journey across the ocean on a sailing yacht. 
uh, which sounds like a lot of fun. I, you know, I would love to do that. Um, I'm a fan of boats in the water, but you know, I don't really have access to a sailing yacht. I don't know about you. And it was a big public to do, a lot of hype for the media. Um, of course, hype because that's all the media does is hype things. Hype that was helped by the fact that Greta, you know, makes disparaging comments about Donald Trump here and there, and so the me- media loves that. And she finally got here on her yacht. Um, she spoke to reporters yesterday. Let's watch. Uh, let's watch a little bit of that. It's strange. Everyone always asks me about Donald Trump, uh, but I mean, my message for him is just listen to the science, and he obviously doesn't do that. So, I mean, I, as I always say to this question, if if any no one has been able to convince him about the climate crisis, the the urgency, then why? should I be able to do that? So I'm just going to to now focus on on spreading awareness and that people in general will start caring and realize how big of a crisis this is. Okay, and then and then and then uh, and then there you have it. So she'll she'll deliver some more po- poignant remarks to the UN, um, like I said soon. Now, Greta, we should mention, uh, because it is it is relevant, I think. Greta has autism. She's also apparently been in the past diagnosed with OCD, uh, eating disorders, other issues. I mean, she's got a lot of mental health issues. But she has become another mascot of left-wing activism. She's been put on this public stage, given the spotlight by the media and by her parents, even in spite of all that. Um, and this is... You know, to, to bring up the mental health issues, that's not to make fun of her or anything like that. Of course not. It's just, it speaks to, again, this problem, I think. Um, it only makes it worse, this, 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 this thing that we do now, where we push kids into the spotlight and we make them mouthpieces for our viewpoints. And we really need to stop that, especially when the kid has mental health issues. And again, that's not an attack on her. That's sympathy. And it's just one more reason not to exploit her. Though, even aside from this, aside from mental health issues, even aside from that, it, the point still stands. The way I see it, there are two problems with turning kids into mascots for political views. Two problems as far as I can see. First of all, um, they the kids have to be put into that position by adults. Now, it's not really something they can do on their own. Uh, no normal adolescent is going to be able to get this kind of media attention and all the rest of it on their own. They have to be elevated by adults, and that elevation is always done for exploitative reasons. Okay, it's never actually done because, uh, wow, you know, this kid's insights are just so tremendous that we, we I, you know, we have to let the whole world know what this person is. No, it's just it's 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 manipulative. It's, it's exploitative. You know, adults know that, okay, well, I mean, I could go out and say this stuff uh, and no one's going to pay pay attention. But if I put these thoughts and words into the mouth of a child and do that gimmick, well, now people are going to pay attention. So it's exploitative in that way. A kid, an adolescent, can't really fully consent to becoming a, pu- a public figure. You know, we talk about consent all the time these days, and it's an important issue. Well, where's the consent here? When you're 
you know, there's a reason why uh, we say the age of consent is, you know, it, it, it varies, but 17, 18 or whatever is age of consent. There's a reason why we say that. And it, it doesn't just apply sexually. It's just the, the idea is as a, as a kid, you, you don't really have a full concept of the uh, consequences of actions. You can't really, you can't see beyond the nose on your face. You can't really see, you can't, you can't quite plan it all out. Like, okay, I'm going to do this and that's going to lead to this, that, and that. Kids aren't really able to make those calculations, which is why we say that they can't, they can't do things like vote. They can't buy guns. They can't do stuff like that. And that's also a reason why I think we shouldn't put them on the public stage because there's a lot that comes with it. Scrutiny and criticism and backlash, all of that. They're not going to be prepared for it. Yeah, they'll love the attention, but they don't, they, they don't understand what comes with it. And they're not going to be prepared for it. Um, second, here's the thing. I'm a 33-year-old adult man. I am 33, right? Or am I 34? No, I'm 33. This is usually where I ask my wife. You have no, many, you have no idea how often I ask my wife how old I am. Um, anyway, and oftentimes I'm wrong, I'm afraid to say. So I am probably around 33 years old. I'm an adult man is the point. I've spent my adult life, uh, you know, like many adults, I've learned and I've thought about things and I've studied issues. Not to mention I've been living and I've been gaining experience and I've been maturing, hopefully, to some extent. Now, granted, there are adults who don't really do any of those things, but many of us have. And as, as those of us who are in that position of being basically mature adults who have learned and thought and studied and so on, um, I, those of us in that position, we, well, I can only speak for myself, I suppose. I have really no interest in the viewpoint of a child. I mean, I'm interested in my own kids' ideas and, and thoughts and everything because they are my kids. And I want them to uh, develop their ideas and all that and share it with me. So I, I do care about it in that sense. That's all good. My point is, maybe I should put it this way. The political and ideological insights of children don't interest me. I, I don't go to kids for insight, especially in the to, to politics, to ideology, philosophy, science, you know, those kinds of things. I don't. I don't go to kids for that. I'm not going to a, to a 15 or 16-year-old girl to find out about that. I'm just not. Because they don't know anything. You know, they haven't done the work yet. And that's not their fault. They're just not old enough. They can't have done it. They can't have thought about these things for very long because they just haven't lived that long. Um, so I'm, that's why I'm not going to a kid to learn about the world. A kid isn't going to teach me things about science and politics and whatever else. And I certainly don't want to hear lectures from kids. So whether it's climate change or guns or whatever, to hear, to hear you know, teenagers up there, ah, you, adults have, you adults haven't done anything. Now you're going to listen to me. Oh, shut up. I mean, what, you don't know anything. You, I, you don't. I mean, and that's, again, it's not a knock on kids. It's just you're, I was the same way when I was 16. And when I was 16, yeah, I thought that I could tell, hey, you listen up to me, okay? I know what's going on here. Yeah, I thought that too when I was 16. Every 16-year-old does. But, you know, then you grow up and you get some life experience and you figure out that, okay, I was actually ignorant as hell. And that's why, and I, I feel bad having to make these points about kids. You know, I, but this is the, it's not my fault. People, 
have put kids in a position where they're up there, you know, lecturing. And so it becomes necessary. This is, this is, you know, so I am now part of the backlash that these kids have to deal with. And I wish they didn't have to deal with it. I wish they weren't put in that position to begin with. But here's what I'm not going to do. And, and this is why people use kids like human shields, like, like ideological human shields. Because the idea is, if a kid is up there saying, okay, we need to confiscate guns or we need to car- carbon tax or Green New Deal or whatever, the kid's saying it, well, then you, you have to just, you, at a minimum, you have to remain silent if you don't like it. But really, you have to agree because otherwise you're attacking a child and how dare you. Well, I'm not going to play that game, okay? If you're putting a 16 or 15 or 12-year-old up there to tell me things that I disagree with, I'm going to say, I, I think you're wrong. And I'm also going to point out that you don't know what you're talking about. I'm sorry. I'm going to say that. I'm gonna, just because you put this, you, you, you put these thoughts into the mouth of a child doesn't mean I have to agree all of a sudden. That game's not going to work. And if the, if the child ends up with hurt feelings or whatever, that's your fault for putting them in that position. Okay, I have kids myself. I don't, you know, I, I get up here myself and I say my own thoughts out of my own mouth. And so if you don't like it, then you could tell me that I'm a horrible, monstrous, evil person. And I hear that all the time. Okay, and I can take it. I don't put these thoughts. I don't have my kids get up and speak for me. I don't do that. And if I did whatever abuse they suffered, it would be my fault, me. It would be on me for putting them in that position and not just having the guts to stand up and say it myself. Um, you know, I, I have never once in my life heard a political opinion from a child that made me go, oh, wow, I never thought of it like that. Huh. I mean, have you? Have you in your entire life, have you actually heard a political opinion or an opinion on world issues from an adolescent that made you, that actually changed the way you thought about things or informed you of something you weren't aware of? Because if so, then, then either that was an utterly brilliant, genius, savant sort of prodigy of a child, which is unlikely, or you're kind of stupid. Um, I mean, if, if you're blown away by the, the ideological political insights of a child, it, it, again, it it could be that that's a really brilliant child, or you, you, you might just be a sort of stupid person that you, that, that a child can impress you in that way. Um, it could go either way. That's the thing. I, I don't know. There are, there are prodigy children out there. Uh, but m- most of the ones I, of all the kids that have been turned into political mascots, I can't, I don't think any of them fall into that prodigy cat. I can't think of one that has. And by the way, this is, this is something that, that people do on both sides of the aisle. I'm not going to sit here and pretend that this is something only the left does. The left does it with, um, with, with gun rights, typically with climate change. Um, but the right does it too, you know? Uh, there have been, and there still are, kids, like high schoolers and middle schoolers and younger, who the right has elevated into sort of thought leaders on the right, even now as we speak. And it's, it's, it's ridiculous. It just is. 
I mean, you know, there, there are, there on the right, there are kids with like massive social media followings, and all they do is give their political opinions. And there are adults who follow them because they want to have access to these kids' insights every day. And anytime one of these kids comes along, I always go and say, okay, well, maybe this is a prodigy, brilliant, genius child. And then I listen to what they have to say. It's like, okay, no, no, they're not. They're just saying, this is just a kid who's just saying things. All right. Um, what else? Well, uh, oh, but but oh, then, then the other part of this uh, Thunberg thing is the fact that she came here on a sailing yacht. And uh, so now we're being told, hey, maybe we all should use, be using sailing lot, yachts because it's because it's it's green friendly or whatever. There was a I, I can't remember which outlet, but there was some there was a, a headline saying, you know, Greta Greta Thunberg came here on a sailing yacht. Uh, sh- should we all be doing that or something? It's like, yes, let me go grab my sailing yacht for my fleet of yachts. Let me go have my butler, uh, you know, go go and and uh, and. and well, I don't know who you have on your staff that, that gets your, your yacht for you, but I'm going to go head down to the marina, okay, and, uh, and grab my sailing yacht. Uh, I hadn't thought of that. I mean, usually when I have to get somewhere and it's more than eight hours away by, drive, by car, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to fly, coach. But it's because I just had never thought to get on my sailing yacht, which I, have, which, I, which I just have sitting there, you know, collecting barnacles. All right. Um, what else is going on? Well, on a very different note, here's a clip from Pink News talking about the plight of non-binary lesbians. Because I, I know you were wondering. I know you got up this morning thinking, what's going on with nine non-binary lesbians? How are they doing? Well, it turns out not very well. Uh, they are, in fact, very upset. And they're going to tell you about it. Watch this. My pronouns are they, them. I am a non-binary lesbian. So I'm Toto. I identify as non-binary and lesbian, and I prefer the pronouns they, them. As far as I'm concerned, my understanding of my gender and my understanding of my sexuality are very much intertwined and linked, like they are one and the same. So can you be non-binary and lesbian? This is something I often get asked, because when you identify as non-binary, you're saying that you're not female. And if you're not female and you're attracted to women, does that make you a lesbian? I think it's sort of disingenuous to claim that you can't be both non-binary and a lesbian because you can definitely have an authentic lesbian experience as a non-binary person. Because at the end of the day, they are terms. They are linguistic tools used to describe an experience that already exists. So you t- someone telling me that I can't be a non-binary lesbian doesn't mean anything because I already am one and I'm just using the language that I have available to me to describe that. So my personal experience uh, with the lesbian community since coming out as non-binary uh, has been uh, rather dismal. <laughs> um, a lot of lesbians that I've encountered, especially on dates, haven't accepted my identity as something that they are interested in dating or accepting to the point where some women have wanted me to use my birth name, which I feel very uncomfortable to use, um, because they want me to be more of a woman rather than uh, someone who identifies in the middle. So they're almost bullying me out of my own identity, which is quite frustrating. I have had people say that you can't be both non-binary and a lesbian, but I do think that comes from a flawed understanding of what lesbianism as an identity means, both now and historically. So what does lesbianism mean? That's not a question I thought I'd be 
asking today, but that's the question posed in this video. I did look it up in the old dictionary just to be sure, and because I thought I knew. And so I looked it up just to be sure. And, and yeah, sure enough, um, here's the definition I found. Sexual attraction or sexual activity between women. Between women. This is the definition of lesbianism. To be a non-female lesbian is then a contradiction in terms. It is literally like claiming to be a married bachelor. A bachelor, by definition, is an unmarried man. If a man is married, it makes no sense for him to identify as a bachelor. Now, many married men, unfortunately, do, in effect, identify as being unmarried. But that doesn't change the fact that they are married. Um, just as a vegetarian is, by definition, someone who doesn't eat meat. So to identify as a meat-eating vegetarian makes no sense. I mean, you can say the words, yes, you can say those words. And you can demand that we all nod in approval and in, with understanding, with feigned understanding when you say it. Yeah, but it doesn't, it still doesn't actually really mean anything. It's nonsensical. You can say that your left hand identifies as your right hand. Fine, you can say that, but it's still your left hand. Your left hand, by definition, cannot be your right hand. In fact, you could define left hand as the hand that is not your right hand. I mean, that could be a definition of left hand for, for, for uh, humans, anyway. So none of this means anything. And what we see here again on the left is that um, the left is waging a war, not just on science, because we shouldn't understate this. Oftentimes, when I've talked about this, I'll say, oh, the left's waging a war on science, they're waging a war on truth, they're waging a war on uh, morality. And all of that is true, but it, it's, it's even deeper than that. They're waging a war on logic itself. That's what's at stake here. So more than claiming that you're a non-binary lesbian, that's, yeah, it's anti-science, yeah, it's, it's deranged in many ways, but it's, it's simply illogical. So what the left wants to do is they want to destroy logic, which is, a, which is a basic capacity of human consciousness. It, it's, it's one of the things that makes us human. It, it, I, arguably, it may be the number one defining facet of human beings is that we're capable of logical thinking, which is what sets us apart from... Uh, every other known creature in the universe. And the left wants to, to break that down because that's, that's what's going on here. All right, one other thing. Um, this is horrific and disgraceful on many levels. There was an incident in Georgia, I believe in Georgia the country. Yeah, Georgia the country, uh, not, the, not the state. Where a woman um, just randomly stabbed a young boy in the face with his parents standing there and then went back and tried to attack the boy's sister. And again, it's, it's the actions of the parents, or the lack thereof, that to me makes this especially notable. Here's a video of it. It's not graphic, um, but, but it is upsetting, as you can imagine. But here's the video. Okay, I just, I don't get this. Why is the father just standing there? I, I, I cannot comprehend that. And on top of the father, the mother's standing there. There's, there's other adults in the street. 
We're just watching this happen. But specifically the father. You know, they say there's never any reason to hit a woman. Well, well, uh, there is sometimes. And here's one of those reasons. So there is at least one reason. The father should have put that woman on the ground hard. Disable her, take the knife away, put her on the ground, make it hurt for good measure. Um, instead, he just stands there. He makes one feeble attempt to, you know, go after her and then, and then runs away, scampers away when she turns toward him. Uh, you know, this is, this is pitiful. I, I don't want to do the thing where we take this one incident and say, oh, what's wrong with men today based on this one? This is just one guy. And I do think that, well, not just one guy, there are other guys there. So, but this is, this is one incident. I think that if this had happened in certain U.S. states, it, like Texas, for example, it probably would have gone differently. Um, but not in all U.S. states. But it does feel symptomatic of something. It does seem like 50 or 60 years ago, there's probably nowhere in the world where a, a woman, you know, an overweight woman could just stroll up to a child with, her father, with his father standing there, stab him in the face and walk away unharmed. It feels like 50 or 60 years ago that probably couldn't have happened anywhere in the world. And now there are large swaths of the world where probably it could. Um, no, that's that's one of those scenarios where, uh, you know, the man needs to step up, even if it is a woman. And and this, I've, I've, I admit, I've, I have been one of those people in the past who have said, oh, there's never any reason to hit a woman. Never hit a woman under any circumstances. I've said that myself. It's just, it's just kind of a, a slogan or a mantra that we say. Um, and the idea in, in principle, what we're trying to communicate, especially if you say it to your son or something, what you're trying to communicate is, we're, you know, women, are, as, a, as, a, as men, we're supposed to protect women. We're not supposed to use our, our, uh, our aggression and our strength to abuse them. You're trying to teach chivalry. That's the idea. But of course, the blanket statement that you can never hit a woman is completely ridiculous. And I realized that at some point. You know, the last time I said it, I had to stop and think, like, wait a second. Is that never? There's never a scenario where you could hit a woman? Of course there is. For instance, if she's stabbing your child in the face, there's an occasion. Definitely you can hit her and you should. Hard. Uh, or if she's trying to stab you. You know, if you're protecting yourself or a loved one, if it's an act of self-defense, then yeah, you can absolutely hit a woman. Definitely. And again, you should actually, not even you can, but you should. Basically, whatever, I mean, really what it comes down to is any, most, in, in most scenarios where it would be okay to hit a man, it would also be okay to hit a woman. Because most of the scenarios where it's okay to hit a man are scenarios of self-defense. Same kind. If a man is trying to stab your child, then you hit the man. It doesn't. The, the gen in that scenario, the gender doesn't make any difference. You're not going to stop and think. Well, hold on a second. Uh, but I mean, think you know she has she has female sexual organs. Therefore, no, you're not going to make that calculation. This is a threat to your child, and you are responding to it. Period. She doesn't get any special treatment. Um. So in most of the scenarios, I think, that's what I, I re, even though I've said this, I realize that, no, I, this couldn't be more wrong, actually. Um, I mean, if the idea of saying never hit a woman is to treat women with respect, then great, but just say that, right? It's a, we should treat men with respect, too. So it's, there's, no, you know, there's nothing special there. I think the only difference 
is, and I say this because I'm, a, I'm an old-fashioned person. Probably doesn't surprise you to learn that. And so I, I do think that on a man-to-man level, sometimes it can be appropriate to use physical force against a man, even if it's not in, in an act of physical self-defense. I think there could be man-to-man moments where a man disrespects you, says something to you, you know, and it's just eye to eye. And so you can respond physically. Now, it might not be prudent depending on the situation, because depending on the situation, you know, who knows? Uh, especially these days, you could go to, with the way we, we react to these kinds of things these days, uh, like in school, you know, you, you could, kids could get expelled for just one punch in the head. And uh, it didn't used to be that way. So prudence may change that. But in principle, I think there are occasions where man-to-man, men can respond that way to each other as men. Um, I would say that responding to a woman physically, responding to, the, to, to a, a verbal assault from a woman physically from a man is, is always wrong. Whereas on a man-to-man level, it might not always be wrong. But... Physical. If you're being physically attacked, it doesn't matter the gender of the person. You have every right to defend yourself and responsibility. And if it's your child, certainly. Um, that's even more the case. All right. Let's move on to emails. Show at gmail.com. Show at gmail.com. This is from Kendall. Says, hey, Matt, I'm a big fan of the show, although admittedly the Matt Wall Show was the last Daily Wire podcast I subscribed to. How dare you? To be fair, it is now my favorite. Oh, okay. Well, you're good. You're cool. During your absence, I refresh my podcast screen regularly, hoping your face would pop up with fresh content, if for no other reason, just to let me know you were alive. I feared the worst, a second torn Achilles, your wife going to labor early, or perhaps you are so fed up with the current political and cultural climate in America that you quit. It was a trying time. Um, I am elated that you are back and talking about Lizzo, Taylor Swift, and all that is wrong with popular music these days. While I agree that the vapid, self-absorbed, and morally corrupt lyrics of today's popular music are mind-numbing and egregious in their lack of substance, there are still real, genuine artists putting out quality content and getting noticed for it. You don't strike me as a fan of rap music, but there is a rising artist called NF that is uh, speaking truth and creating introspective, thoughtful music free from butt-flashing and self-aggrandizing Check out the link below to some of his music. Um, yeah, I actually didn't. I, I, I didn't even click on the link, so I can't play that for you. But uh, I am familiar with NF. I've heard a couple of his songs. Now, yeah, this is a rapper. This I believe is a Christian, te- technically a you know a Christian rapper, right? Um, I've heard a few of his songs. The one song, "The Search," I guess probably is his most most well known. I think it's a good song. I think I, I, he, he, here's what I'll say about him as a Christian artist and what really sets him apart. Um, and before I get there, I, so I listened to that song. I liked it, heard a few others. I wasn't big on his other songs. They weren't terrible. They just thought, you know, they got a little bit repetitive after a while, in my opinion. But I, I, I do think he's very talented. And that's the thing. As a Christian artist, here's what I like about him. Even if I'm not, even if I'm not crazy about all of his songs, what I like about him is, number one, he's got real talent. Not just talent for a Christian artist, but real, actual talent. He's got a relevant sound. Okay, so it doesn't sound like you're listening to something from 1993. It doesn't sound like you're listening to something that would, would, would be most at home at a you know, Christian youth conference. It just sounds relevant. 
current, you know, with it, all that. And, but here's the main thing that I like about this guy that, and I, and I wish more Christian artists would do. I've been, I've been preaching this for years. He's making music from what I, and I'm not an expert on it, but it seems like not all of his songs are about Jesus. In fact, it seems like most of them aren't, right? Many of them aren't. He's talking about other things. Just because he's a Christian making music and he wants to make music that is uh, edifying and good and wholesome and, and, and you know, not, uh, not, as you say, butt-flashing and self-aggrandizing, that doesn't mean that literally every song has to explicitly be about Jesus and every single chorus has to be praise Jesus, praise your name, you're wonderful. And nothing wrong with songs like that, but you, you can talk about other stuff. There, there's so much in life to talk about. There are so many things. And as Christians, we experience other things. I mean, in your own life, is, is, that, is that the only thing you ever talk about is the Bible and Jesus? You talk about, uh, you, you experience other things. And so Christian artists should talk about those other things too. Why make a song about love, about, about, you know, about heartbreak, about loss, about, uh, this, this one song, the search, I think is kind of about his mental, uh, health, uh, struggles. That's a real thing. Talk about it. You don't have to throw in a praise Jesus just to, just to cover the bases. G- and Jesus is okay with that. He's not going to be offended. He can deal with it. He's, he's fine with it. He, There's nothing in the Bible saying that every single conversation you ever have must center explicitly and directly around me. It's not in there. Jesus is is not an egomaniac uh, in in that respect or in any other respect. So that's what I really like about it. And I I just, again, Christian artists, this used to be, I mean, uh, you go back through the ages and you think about great Christian artists, not just musical artists, but novelists, painters, sculptors. Yeah, a lot of their stuff was, was heavily religious, but not all of it. They, they told stories and they dealt with real things in life. And they did it in a way that would point you back to the truth and to goodness and to light. But it didn't have to be so explicit all the time. Um, so, yeah, good stuff there. From Dan uh, says, Matt, I staunchly disagree with you. You should be advocating for this woman to get on the field, talking about the female uh, field goal kicker. Then she can prove herself that she does not belong there. It may result in her getting seriously injured, but if she's signing up for an NFL team, that's what she's signing up for. Why not let, let these people have what they want and then deal with the real consequences of it? Yeah, I look, I understand that attitude, but I just, I don't want to see a woman get killed on an NFL field. I don't want to see it. Uh, I don't want it to happen. I don't want to see it. If it did happen, my first reaction isn't going to be, see, I told you so. Uh, it would be a terrible thing. I just, so, yeah, I think at a certain point, uh, with, in, in some ways, feminists have to be sort of hoisted on their own petard and, and made to realize the flaws in there. But I don't want to see people get hurt. And if you put a woman on on the field with NFL players, she will get very, very hurt. And uh, I would prefer, I'd prefer if they could learn their lesson before that point. And so that doesn't need to happen. Um, from Rachel says, oh, Matt, superior of the bearded, uh, superior of the bearded race and redeemer of Catholics against the shame of Michael Knowles. If I'm forced to sit right beside someone on the crowded bus, 
and at one stop, almost everyone unloads, is it more awkward to move or to stay there when they are uh, when there are many open seats not beside someone? Many thanks, Rachel. Uh, Rachel, I, I cannot be more emphatic about this. You should absolutely move. Definitely move. 100% move. Um, look at it this way. If the person you're sitting next to is a normal person, a normal, well-adjusted person, they want you to move because they want they, they could use the personal space and they're not going to be offended by it. If they're the kind of person who would be offended by you moving then that's a weirdo, and that's someone you don't want to sit next to anyway. So either you're sitting next to a weirdo, in which case move, or you're sitting next to a normal person, in which case move because you're not going to offend them. So either way, move, give yourself space. I mean, I I, I think that we're all on the same page with, with, with this, right? At least in America. I mean, this is America. In America, we value our personal space. We don't want to be too close to anyone. It, we, we like having our space in America. Now, in other countries, they have different ideas about personal space. That's just one of the many reasons why I'm glad I don't live in any other country. In this country, always err on the side of giving someone personal space. If you're asking yourself, should I give them space or not? Give them space. Just like if you're asking yourself, should I make awkward small talk right now or just stay or, or just shut up and, and, and let them sit there in silence? Just shut up and let, their, let them be in silence. Always err on that side. In my opinion... Always err on the antisocial side in every scenario. Uh, at least that's what I would prefer for you to do as an antisocial person myself. I was on a plane recently and um, a few months ago, and it was, uh, you know, I was sitting on the, the window seat. Someone was sitting in the middle seat, and then the door shut. Nobody shows up to sit in the aisle seat. And this is where the person in the middle seat moves over so that we all have more space. But this guy, I sat there assuming he would move. And as the minutes went on and progressed, I began to panic in my head thinking, this guy's not moving. He's actually going to sit. There's a three-hour flight. This guy's going to sit in the middle seat next to me when he doesn't need to. And there's a seat there. Now, it's awkward for me to have to say, hey, buddy, can you get your butt up and move, you weirdo? It's awkward for me to have to say that, um, but at ev- eventually, as we you know started the, making our way down the tarmac, and I realized like this guy is just going to sit here, and then it started to freak me out. I started thinking, do I need to get an air marshal? I mean, why is this guy? What is he doing? Why does he want to be so close to me? So then, eventually, I had to say I tried to be as as diplomatic as I could be, but I tried to say, hey, you know, you got that seat next to you. Did you want to, you know, did you want to just, you know go that way over there, not next to me. And, uh, and he did move, but he gave me kind of, it was a kind of a pause and he looked over as if he hadn't noticed the seat was empty, which I don't believe. And then he looked at me and he said, oh, okay. And he gave me kind of a, I, I, I detected a, a thing where he kind of looked as a, as a very brief sort of eye roll. Um, but that was a disturbing, that was just a disturbing and traumatizing event. So anyway, definitely move. Finally, uh, let's see, we've got a couple here. Um, Okay, this is one. Is, this is another one on social etiquette from Leo. Says, "Hi Matt, am I wrong to be pissed off at people who use FaceTime in public?" No, Leo, you are not. This is another thing. I mean, this. I could do a. I could do forty-five minutes on this. Maybe I'll do a whole show on this because this has become. Uh, in my maybe it's just my imagination, but it seems like over the last few months it's gotten so much worse. Every time I go to a, a coffee shop now, 
Um, or I sit down at a, you know, I travel a lot, so I, I do a lot of eating alone and sitting places alone, which I enjoy, again, as an antisocial person. Um, so maybe I notice it more, I don't know. But whether you're at a bar or you're sitting in a coffee shop, people are just sitting there. Like they've got their phone propped up and they're in, you know, there's someone on FaceTime. They just have their pal with them sitting at the table talking to the person. That is not okay. If you, if you really need to talk to someone who isn't physically with you, then you get on the phone and you talk to them. We don't need to hear the other side of the conversation. And before you say, well, what's the difference? What if I had the person sitting physically there with me? What's the difference? There's a big difference. First of all, the guy's louder. It's just a different tone. It's more obnoxious than it would be if he was sitting next to you. And also, again, I mean, do you really need that? Whoever that person is, do you really need to see them while you're talking to them? If you need to see them that badly, then go and get in a car and find them and talk to them. No. Using FaceTime in public is absolutely, and it goes without saying, when I am dictator of the world, um, there will be immediate executions. It, it, you, there will not, you won't be arrested. There won't be anything. It's just, you're done. That's all. I'll make it quick, uh, depending on what kind of mood I'm in. We'll leave it there. Thanks, everybody, and uh, and have a great weekend. Talk to you next week. Godspeed. If you enjoyed this episode, don't forget to subscribe. And if you want to help spread the word, please give us a five-star review and tell your friends to subscribe as well. We're available on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, wherever you listen to podcasts. Also, be sure to check out the other Daily Wire podcasts, including The Ben Shapiro Show, Michael Knowles Show, and The Andrew Clavin Show. Thanks for listening. The Matt Wall Show is produced by Robert Sterling, associate producer Alexia Garcia Del Rio, executive producer Jeremy Boring, senior producer Jonathan Hay, our supervising producer is Mathis Glover, and our technical producer is Austin Stevens, edited by Donovan Fowler. Audio is mixed by Mike Coromina. The Matt Wall Show is a Daily Wire production, copyright Daily Wire 2019. If you prefer facts over feelings, if you aren't offended by the brutal truth, if you can still laugh at the nuttiness filling our national news cycle, well, tune on in to The Ben Shapiro Show, where you'll get a whole lot of that and much more. We'll see you there.